Let me join in welcoming everybody and hope you all had a wonderful Christmas season and a good new year. Welcome to 2024. And so since we are in 2024, we are going to be jumping back into our series in Genesis after our Advent break. And if you've been with us, you know that we kind of taught through the first three chapters of Genesis in the fall. So today we're going to pick up in chapter 4, and our text for today is verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4, and the title of the message today is just Cain and Abel. So if I were to ask you, what is the single most important thing that defines a person's life, what would you say? I mean, there might be... A lot of different answers to that question. Maybe some would say their character, uh, or maybe it would be their relationships and how they show love and kindness to others. Or maybe perhaps you would think it's their achievements, their successes, or the contribution they make to this world in some way. Or maybe you'd come up with something else. But if we go to the Bible, The Bible gives us really a very clear answer to that question. The Bible would tell us that the single most important thing that defines a person's life is whether their life is characterized by faith or unbelief. And today we're going to look at a Bible story that most of us have probably heard in Sunday school or read in a Bible story book at some point. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And often I think the telling of this story, it focuses on the issue of anger and how we should treat one another. But I don't think that's really the main point that Moses, who is the author of Genesis, is trying to communicate in this passage. See, there is a deeper underlying issue that is at the center of this story. An issue, really, that separates all people in in this world into two distinct groups an issue that defines not only our life now, but our eternal destiny as well. See, what the story of Cain and Abel was really about is faith and unbelief. It's about the seriousness of unbelief and how it affects our lives. Unbelief is an an unwillingness to trust God an unwillingness to believe what God says, a refusal to rely and depend upon God for what we need, an unwillingness to put our hope and trust in God rather than ourselves. See, unbelief shapes the lives and destinies of people. And as we will see from this text, it shaped Cain's life and destiny as well. And so as we look at this passage, I think the the main point, the big idea that Moses wants us to see is that unbelief is the defining characteristic of those who are not right with God. Unbelief is the defining characteristic of those who are not right with God. So why don't we take a moment just to kind of review a little bit of where we've come from in Genesis, set a little context for this passage. 
So as Genesis begins, it begins with creation, and creation begins with God's purpose to establish a kingdom for himself where he would have a people that would be his people, that would live in his place, under his rule, experiencing his favor and blessing. And so he creates a universe, and he fashions a world called earth and fills it with living things. And the pinnacle of his universe is the creation of human beings who are made in his image to be his people. And he places Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden and everything is in perfect harmony. God and man are in perfect harmony with one another. Man and woman in perfect harmony. Man and nature in perfect harmony. I mean, this is the perfect life. It's the picture of God's perfect kingdom. But it doesn't last. The serpent comes on the scene and deceives Eve and tempts them to disobey God. And so they listen to the serpent and disobey and sin enters the world. And the perfect kingdom is destroyed and lost. And their sin brings judgment and a curse upon the entire creation. And they are driven from the garden and away from God's presence And in the judgment God pronounces upon the serpent for his part in their rebellion, there is a key statement that sets the stage for our passage today. It's in Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, this verse tells us that there will be two lines of people who emerge from this world-changing moment of curse and judgment that took place in the garden. One that is characterized as being the offspring of the serpent. Those who would be associated with and identified with him. And the other line would be defined by a specific offspring of the woman who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent and those who would be associated and identified with him. And between these two lines of people, there would be enmity and hostility throughout the ages that were to come. And what will identify these Two lines of people is not who their parents or ancestors are, or their race, or their nationality. What would distinguish these two lines of people is faith and unbelief. Those who trust in God and his promise to make a way to deal with sin and the serpent's grip on humanity. Those who believe God and depend on him and put their hope in him, and those who don't. And so as we come to Genesis 4, we see the beginning of the working out of this pronouncement made by God in Genesis 3.15. So before we look at this passage together, let's take a moment and just ask God to meet us in this time. Lord, we come to you. 
Lord, wanting you to instruct us this morning from your word. And so I ask that you would be present here with us today in the presence and power of your spirit, that you would grant me grace, Lord, to speak your word faithfully and, and in a way that honors and pleases you. And I pray that your spirit's presence would be here with each of us in this time together, whether we are online or here in person, Lord, I pray that you might grant grace and favor to bless this time for your glory and the good of your people, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't we read through this passage together to get a feel for it, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. So Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So there are three things we want to look at today in this text that help us see that unbelief is the defining characteristic of those who are not right with God. And the first one is that unbelief makes all the quote-unquote good things we do unacceptable to God. And so this story begins with what appears to be great hope and promise. If we look at verses 1 and 2, it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. 
So there seems to be a, a renewed trust and dependence and faith in God and upon God on the Eve's part after the disobedience in the garden. And the wording in verse 1 implies that perhaps she even thought that Cain might be the promised one who would undo the effects of the fall. But things unfold in a much different way. As we pick up in verses 3 through 5, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So Cain and Abel each bring an offering to the Lord, and God accepts Abel and his offering, but he does not accept Cain and his offering. And so the question is, why? And this is a question that there has been a lot of ink spilled over the centuries and a lot of debate around. Some people would say that it's because Abel brought a, a living sacrifice offering, a blood offering, and, and Cain brought fruit and vegetables. But I don't know that that really stands up to scrutiny because both of those kinds of offerings were acceptable in the Old Testament is system of offerings in Israel. See, on the surface, both offerings seem to be a good thing. So why would God accept one and yet not the other? And there are clues, I think, in this text that help us understand why Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's wasn't. See, verse 4 tells us, Abel brought the best of the firstborn of his flock to give to the Lord. And the language here, it almost has the idea he brought the fattest of the firstlings of his flock. He brought the very best and first of what he had. And all it says about Cain is that he brought an offering. See, there's, this is not insignificant. See, Cain didn't bring the first fruits or his best to offer to God. And the nature of his offering reveals really the motives of his heart. See, Cain is withholding his best for himself. His trust is it's not in God. He's not depending on God for his provision in life. He doesn't value God as worthy of his best. Withholding his best from God reveals his lack of faith and trust in God. In bringing his offering, Cain is really merely discharging a religious duty or obligation. You see, he doesn't see God as the one who has made a way for him to be accepted. His offering isn't made in gratefulness to God for doing this. See, he wants to be approved by doing an external religious duty a religious obligation that he thinks somehow earns him God's approval. You see, he wants God's approval on his terms rather than God's terms. 
And that's why it says in verse 5, God didn't just reject Cain's offering, but it tells us he rejected Cain as well. See, Cain is trying to earn God's approval in a way that can never succeed. He's trying to win God's approval through his own works, through his own performance. And he's established his own terms for how he will approach God. And rather than trust in what God says and be accepted on God's terms, his offering reveals a heart of unbelief towards God. The writer of Hebrews really confirms that this is the real issue here. In Hebrews 11.4, he says it this way. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. You see, there's the difference. It's faith and unbelief. An offering was a good thing, but no good thing can ever make us or anything we do acceptable to God in and of itself. Only faith that trusts God to make a way for us to be acceptable to him can be pleasing to him. Only good works that flow out of that faith are pleasing to God. Just a couple verses later in Hebrews eleven six, the writer tells us that. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, no matter what kind of good works we try to do, without faith, a faith that relies on God to make a way for us to be acceptable, a faith that relies on God to be the rewarder, the provider of all that we need and have, a faith that comes to him on that basis, nothing we do will be acceptable to God without that. We can feed the poor, We can care for the sick. We can give all our money away to help others. Without faith that receives God's acceptance and approval as a gift, faith that trusts in him to make us acceptable before him on his terms, no good work will ever be acceptable to him or make us acceptable to him. We can never earn God's acceptance and approval by what we do. We can only receive it by faith, trusting in what he says is the way for us to be made right with him. And you see, Cain didn't do that. He set up his own way to gain God's acceptance. And when it didn't work, he became angry and resentful. But his approach to the offering and his anger and resentment, they reveal that the root issue was his failure to trust and believe God. The root issue was unbelief. The second thing this passage tells us is that unbelief leads to disregarding and disobeying God. Let's pick up in verses 6 through 8. It says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. See, God is being very gracious and kind to Cain in these verses. Despite Cain's unbelief, God comes to him to warn him of the danger he's in and to appeal to him. He confronts Cain and exposes what's going on in his heart and how he's responding. He gives Cain an opportunity to acknowledge his wrong attitude and to turn from it. See, God's questions are intended to provoke a change of heart in Cain. He tells him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He's saying, you can still put your faith and trust in me. It's not too late. So how will Cain respond to God's correction now that his heart has been exposed? And in this moment, he is facing a choice with incredible consequences. See, God wants to help him choose rightly. A wrong choice will give sin the opportunity to destroy him. And in these verses, sin is really just personified, like, like some demonic being crouching at the doorway, waiting for the chance to come in if he makes the wrong choice. And God is warning him, Cain, be careful. If you make the wrong choice here, sin is going to destroy you. It is not your friend. Its desire is contrary to you. It doesn't have your best interest at heart. Don't do the wrong thing here. But how will he choose? Once again, unbelief rules his response. He doesn't believe God's warning. He doesn't trust that God is for him and that his way is best for him. He disregards God and rejects his words. He disobeys God's direction. He allows sin to take root. And in his anger, it leads him to murder his brother. And in his unbelief, he identifies himself with the seed of the serpent spoken of in Genesis 3.15. The Apostle John says it in 1 John 3.11 and 12. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. See, Cain's attitude and actions toward his brother, they're they're the result of his unbelief towards God. And unbelief will lead us to disregard and disobey God. It will allow sin to rule and gain power in our lives. It will shape what we do and say. And unbelief will always reveal itself in our attitudes, our words, our actions. And it will inevitably lead us to disregard and disobey God. But there's a third thing that I think we see in this passage. And that is that unbelief ultimately results in God's judgment and curse. 
Let's look at verses 9 through 16. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. You see, unbelief ultimately leads to God's judgment and curse. But even after Cain's blatant disregard of God's word, even after he violently murdered his brother, God still reaches out to him in grace and mercy and invites him to confess and repent. He asks him, where is your brother? To give him yet another chance to acknowledge his sin and turn to God. But his heart will not turn. And he refuses God's invitation. There is no evidence of any remorse or repentance over what he has done. Instead, he lies to God and sarcastically questions him. He says, Lord, look, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, how unbelief has hardened and twisted his heart. I mean, think about it. This is not some human being he's interacting with, right? This is the almighty, sovereign, infinite God who's engaging with him, and he's acting and responding this way. I mean, how unbelief can twist our hearts and harden them. And in verse 10, we see God's righteous responsibility to judge and punish sin. Verse 10 says, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The murder of Abel literally cries out to God for his righteous judgment upon this sin. And in view of Cain's unwillingness to repent, his unwillingness to turn to God in faith, for God to provide a way of forgiveness for what he's done, God pronounces judgment upon him, and he's cursed. He's banished from the cultivated area of the land. He's expelled from his family relationships into exile. He's shut out from all fellowship with God. His relationship with God is forever broken, as God's face will be hidden from him from this point forward. But even after God's judgment and curse, there is no remorse, no repentance seen in Cain. Only a complaining self-pity that his punishment is too severe. He has rejected God's offer to trust in God's way to come to him over and over again. And the just result of his continual rejection is condemnation and judgment. Yet even here, 
In verses 15 and 16, we see God's great mercy and kindness towards Cain and the unbelieving. In 15 and 16, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Not so, in response to Cain saying, Everybody's going to kill me. It says, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You see, even though justice would say that Cain should have been executed right then and there for what he has done, God not only allows him to live and provides a place for him, but he provides protection for him for the few, from the future descendants of Adam who would seek to avenge Abel's murder and kill him. But even though God is extremely merciful and gracious to Cain in this moment, his mercy does not remove the judgment and curse. And you know, I think this is something that people really don't get in the world we live in. Because, see, there is a, what theologians call a common grace that God pours out on this world day after day after day, where he pours out his mercy and kindness and goodness on the evil and the good, his people, the unbelieving, on all humanity. And he pours blessing out upon people all the time with, through friends and family and prosperity and, and just countless blessings that come our way every day. And I think where people get it wrong is they think that all this blessing means that they're okay with God, that they have God's approval, that he accepts them because they see the grace and the blessing and kindness of God, and they think, I must be okay with God if he's blessing me like and I had a, a good friend in college and for years after that. And uh, we were roommates for a while. We played a lot of sports together. We competed against one another. And he was really quite an impressive guy. He was about six foot six and very athletic. And he was the kind of guy that just about anything that he picked up and tried to do, he could do it really well in a short period of time. And he had a very optimistic positive outlook on life. And, um, and after I got saved in 1985, we would have numerous conversations about the gospel and me trying to share with him his need for a savior. But every time that I would do that, I'd always get the same response. He would say to me, you know, he would point out how God was blessing him here and blessing him there. And, and he just, you know, saw God's blessing all over his life. And he assumed from that that God was, that he had God's favor, that God accepted him, that he was okay with God. And he could never see that he had a need for a Savior. Ironically, he passed away very early in life in a very unusual way. He, he had an infection in his toe. And I don't know what happened, whether he didn't get it treated quickly or whatever, but it spread throughout his body and killed him. And as far as I know, he never came to a place of seeing his need for Jesus as a Savior. 
But you know, in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says this to him. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus says, I want you to live. If you're going to be a follower of me, I want you to love your enemies and do good and pray for those who treat you badly. He said, because when you do that, you're being like your father in heaven because he does good to his enemies as well as those are his people. See, God pours out his grace and mercy every day on those who, because of their unbelief, are under his judgment and curse. And we must not assume that God's kindness and mercy and blessing in this life is a sign of his approval or that we're right with him. I mean, God may be kind and merciful in many ways in a person's life, but that doesn't mean that they're right with God. Cain's life shows us that unbelief will ultimately result in God's judgment and curse because unbelief is the defining characteristic of those who are not right with God. And so this story is really about two lines of people that are represented by Cain and Abel. Those who are characterized by faith and trust in God and those who are characterized by unbelief. When Jesus is speaking to the Jews in John chapter 8, and and you know, when you think about the Jews, you would think, Okay, they, they were God's chosen people, right, in the Old Testament. They, they had the, the right worship of the one true God. They had the Old Testament scriptures. If anybody would, would be okay with God on the basis of the blessings God had given them, you would think it would be the Jews, right? And yet Jesus says to them in John 8, verses 42 and 45, it says, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And here's what he says. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus says to these Jewish people who you would think had every blessing that you could imagine in being right with God. He says, no, he says, you're of your father, the devil. You're of the seed of the serpent. Why? Because of your unbelief. And so there are two kinds of people that make up this world, those who believe God and trust in what he says and those who do not. And every human being falls into one of these two lines. 
And this story of Cain and Abel tells us that there will be hostility, there will be conflict, there will be enmity between these two lines of people, and that hostility and enmity will continue until the end of this age. And so as Moses is writing this account for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, who are about to enter into the promised land, this story would have really direct application for them. Because this story would warn them, don't imitate Cain's unbelief in how you relate and respond to God. See, their history since leaving Egypt was one of regularly grumbling and complaining in their unbelief towards God. And their unbelief resulted in an entire generation dying in the wilderness, unable to enter God's rest in the promised land. And so this story would remind them of the sobering consequences of unbelief. And this story would also warn them, don't perform your sacrifices and service to God as an external duty that doesn't reflect the genuine heart of faith and trust in God. And that kind of religious activity can never be acceptable to God. And yet they would fall into that reality over and over and over again through the years. It would warn them to beware because all around them would be godless cultures where God has poured out much blessing and mercy and prosperity and music and arts and accomplishments and many other ways. But these cultures will be hostile to them and will oppose them as the people of God. And so this story would speak to Israel in that time. But this story should also speak to us as Christians today. Because just like Israel, we are surrounded by a culture that doesn't know God. A culture that is hostile and antagonistic in different ways to those who by faith are God's people. A culture that wants to draw you into unbelief in how you live. A culture that will be hostile to you and what you believe. And this story tells us, don't, don't be surprised at that reality. It has always been this way from the very beginning. And God would also say to us through this story, don't be like Cain. That's not who you are. Don't let your worship and the living out of the spiritual aspects of your life become just outward, external duties. Be diligent to cultivate a genuine heart of faith and trust in God. Don't settle for just going through the religious motions. Why do you come here on Sunday morning? We can have a lot of different reasons. And this story would tell us, be careful. Don't let doing your spiritual things in life and how you do them just become going through the religious motions. Thinking somehow just doing those things will make you acceptable and pleasing to God. Because it won't. 
Don't neglect your spiritual life and drift towards unbelief. The writer in Hebrews once again warns us about this in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin is deceitful, just as we saw in Cain's life. It wants to move us away from faith and trust in God. And this is one of the reasons why we need one another, the writer here says. We need one another to be in community together, to help one another, to walk in faith and trust and not be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. And let me just say this. When I talk about unbelief, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about the the struggles that we can have in our faith with doubts and wrestling with our faith at times. I think one of, the, one of the evidences of genuine faith is that there are times when you wrestle with it. There are times when you struggle with doubt. I mean, I know there are times when I look at my life and I just look at myself and I, I see how far short I fall in so many different ways and the wrong ways that I respond to people and how I treat my wife and family and, and my selfishness and lack of love in so many different ways. And I look at myself and there are times I say, Lord, is it, how is it possible that I'm saved? Can you relate to that? I mean, just saying, God, when I look at myself, you know, am I really saved? I mean, could, could I be saved and still be like this? And so there are times then when we wrestle with those kind of doubts and struggles at times. But see, the real issue is where do we wind up? Where do we land in those times? Do we land in a place of unbelief where we reject God and turn away from him? Or do we wrestle through those things and land in a place of clinging to God in our faith and trust in him? You know, when I, when I find myself in those times, I mean, here, here's what I try to do. I, I, tell, I have to tell myself. You see, because when, when I start looking at myself, and looking at me as the basis of determining my salvation, I'm starting to think like Cain. That there's something that I can do, something that I bring to the table that will make me acceptable to God. And in those moments, what what I do is I remind myself, no, it's not my righteousness that keeps me secure in God's acceptance and approval. It's the righteousness that was given to me by Jesus. It was God's way of providing a way to make me right with him, not my way. It was Jesus' righteousness that I stand in that makes me acceptable, regardless of how far short I fall. It was his death on the cross that paid for my sins, that brings me into God's presence and to his favor and blessing. 
You say, I need to stop looking inward and look outward. And the question that I need to ask is simply this. Is Jesus a sufficient Savior to save me? Can I trust him to do that? See, because then I'm looking at the way God has provided a way for me to be saved and the basis of my salvation. If I could have the worship team come. But you know, the truth is that every one of us in this room or listening online was like Cain at one point in our lives. If we sit here today as a Christian, it's only because in his kindness and mercy, at some point God reached out and intervened in our lives that we might turn from our unbelief and turn to him in faith. And that by his grace, we might be included among his people. Those who are included in that line of faith. And if you're sitting here today, or maybe you're listening online, and you're not a Christian, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never crossed over from being a part of those who live in unbelief to become a child of God, one who's a part of the family of faith through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If that's where you're at, then I think this story speaks to you as well. Because in this passage, I want you to see the kindness and mercy of God as he reached out to Cain over and over and over again, inviting him to turn from his unbelief and put his faith in God's way of making him acceptable to God. And God is doing the same thing to you as you sit here, as you listen today. See, through this passage, God is inviting you to turn from your unbelief and to put your faith and trust in his way of saving you and making you right with him. You see, the serpent crusher who was promised in Genesis 3.15, he's come. He has come. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans 16.20, says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See, Jesus Christ was this promised one who came to make a way to make us right with God. To remove the curse and judgment that is on all of our lives because of our sin and the disobedience and the fall that happened in the garden. You see, Jesus is God's way of making us right with him. This is the way God has provided to make every human being have the possibility of being right with him. And he did that by sending his son into this world to become a human being. And Jesus walked through this life, and as he walked through this life, he trusted God perfectly. He depended on God perfectly. In perfect faith, he always did the things that were pleasing to God. He earned God's favor and blessing and acceptance and approval. He earned a perfect righteousness by his perfect life. And then having no sin of his own, He gave himself to die on a cross to stand in our place. 
to take our place and to take the judgment, the curse, the punishment for our sins upon himself so that we could be forgiven and then to give us as a gift the perfect acceptance and righteousness that he earned. You see, that's God's way of making you right with him. And you know, God provides that freely. It's by grace. All you have to do is receive it by faith. Put your trust in what God says. Believe him and his way of making you right with him. Put your trust and your hope in Jesus and what he did, that he would be your Lord and your Savior. You see, that's the only way God has provided to make anybody right with him. The Apostle John tells us that in 1 John 5, 9 through 12. He says, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony of God that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. See, this is God's testimony of how he has made a way to make you and every human being right with him. And so I would appeal to you this morning Don't let unbelief shape your life and destiny. Accept God's invitation to come to him on his terms while you still can. Don't be like Cain whose unbelief revealed that he wasn't right with God. Because you see, unbelief is the defining characteristic of those who are not right with God. So let's stand together and close with a song.